So we've got a exciting show going on here. We've got our good friend Rosa joining us, who's usually one of our co-hosts, but she's going to be doing a different role today. So Gary, why don't you kick it off and share with us what we're going to have in store? Sure. Thanks, Tamara. Well, welcome everybody for joining us. Uh, as Tamara says, I'm, I'm really delighted to bring a really good friend of mine, Rosa Carrillo, which I think most of you do know. And Rosa's here to talk about her second book. And the title of the book is Health and Safety Leadership Strategy, How Authentically Inclusive Leaders, ooh, I'm fine with what that is, inspire employees to achieve extraordinary results. So welcome, Rosa. Thank you. Thank you. It's always good to be my, with you, my friends, and uh, get a chance to talk about this book, which I'm hoping is going to cause people to rethink the way uh, safety and health is, is being managed right now from a people perspective. Right, right. Well, this book is so hot, it's not even been released yet. So what is your release date? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, well, it may be released earlier, but right now it's May 13th. Okay. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I see, I think that's a good sign because usually the publication dates are delight, delayed, but this one keeps getting moved up. Uh, it was supposed to be published last year, but uh, here we are, May. It's a slow process to print a book. All right, good. Well, in 2021, you gave us the book, The Relationship Factor in Safety Leadership, Achieving Success Through Employee Engagement. So. What made you decide to write this one? Well, we were in the middle of the COVID pandemic and I was talking with a lot of safety and health advisors, both on LinkedIn, which I love the conversations on LinkedIn and also just touching base uh, with people to see how things were going. And I noticed a pattern of burnout, stress, uh, and general feeling of being discounted. Uh, and a lot of people were thinking about quitting. And if you remember at that same time, we had the great resignation going on mm -hmm. as well. So, it, uh, and the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, which uh, initiated the, the, the movement for, for racial justice. Uh, and I thought, this is one of those times in history when several uh, events come together to create openings to really change fundamental things about our society. Uh, it, the statistics were all over the place about um, how women were leaving the workforce. Uh, people were just quitting their jobs and deciding on different careers. And that was really absolutely happening in the health and safety field. So I wanted to capture that in, in a book, that moment. And I wanted to bring to light the hidden potential. And I say hidden only because it's ignored or not seen the potential of the people that are attracted to work in safety and health. It's very, uh, special. It's very people-oriented. It's it's caring. It's in fact a helping profession. And I don't think I've ever heard anybody talking about the safety and health advisor as being a member of the helping profession. And I'm not talking about every single person who works in safety and health. Obviously, there's different aspects. The people that are more interested in the mechanical or risk aspects, but this group is substantially large. Uh, that views themselves primarily as part of the helping profession. So that's what this book is about. Ultimately, it's about developing a strategy uh, that uh, would recognize that hidden potential. And then also really the fact that's where my title comes from, the authentic leadership bringing forth extraordinary results is that the attitude and expectation of the leader has everything to do with uh, how people are formed and the kinds of business results they have. Uh, and there's many examples of that through history. Yeah, so it's very clear. I, and as I read the book there, it's um, one of your target audiences are HNS advisors. Um, who else would really benefit from reading this book? 
Well, I'm hoping that managers, executives uh, read it. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, also the uh, people in charge of education of health and safety professionals. There's a whole chapter dedicated to the social sciences and the importance of building relationships, which is not covered in the education of an MBA or in, in health and safety. So we have these folks that are coming in to work in a people um, related job and they don't know how to communicate. They don't know how to relate uh, and they're, they're lost. So we need to change the curriculum early on of both the health and safety advisors and the executives. Great, thank you. Well, you, you structured your book into four themes. So can you just give us a brief idea what those four themes are? Okay. Well, I'm going, the uh, one part is just capturing everything that was going on during the pandemic in terms of the suffering, uh, the conditions of uh, women in the workplace, um, uh, and the, the struggle, the burdens that people went through, particularly women. And then there were the people that were considered uh, indispensable workers, which health and safety advisors were part of that group. While a, a percentage of us, including me, uh, was at home, all safe and comfortable. Uh, and the divide of the haves and have nots just became really obvious in that. So the first part of the book captures the social turmoil going on, uh, which includes the racism, uh, the divide on um, who is listened to, who isn't listened to, and also some of the research on the, the social structure in the workplace that some people are heard and listened to, and most people are not. So I captured all of those uh, studies that were going on at the time. Uh, the other one that is probably, uh, um, I just mentioned uh, chapter eight, which is on the strategy to build relationships, captures the basic fundamentals of the social systems in the organization that there's very little education in that area. Uh, and the importance of relationships, again, in to communication, to buy-in. Uh, there's also uh, a, a chapter on the safety and health professionals specifically, the things that they're facing and the things that would have to change in order for safety and health to become, uh, to be looked at as a core bus business process and that not a, an add-on afterwards. Uh, one of the things that happened during COVID is that safety professionals were seen as a vital part of the organization because they were keeping people safe physically. Uh, and people were enjoying that. Uh, and so how do we keep that consciousness alive? In fact, safety and health professionals were the ad hoc leaders during that time because management was absent, management was gone. And I did have the privilege of going into um, some facilities to interview employees during that time. We had to all wear our masks and very rigid protocols, but uh, there was a huge sentiment among the, um, shall we call them the, the absolutely necessary workforce, how, yeah, they're always telling us how important we are, but they don't listen to us. And certainly safety and health advisors were part of that group. So that is um, really, I don't, I don't know, probably if uh, forgetting things, I do have a chapter on why I talk about authentically uh, inclusive leadership. I really struggled with that because so, there's so much out there on inclusive leadership. I mean, if you Google inclusive leadership, you're going to get, uh, you know, millions of hits. But authentically inclusive I was uh, attempting to communicate that people know whether you're being honest, whether uh, you're being true to yourself and not just faking it. And so I go into some details about the actual practices 
hoping that it'll help uh, younger managers uh, and, and safety and health advisors who haven't had this education realize that it's uh, that the practices of being in authentically inclusive aren't difficult. They're not uh, esoteric. They're just the simple act of civility and of recognizing the humanness in each other. Okay, I think this is a good time. And if anybody's got some comments, please add them in the chat. Uh, just do a quick little exploration of this word authentic um, versus being fake. So how do you know if a person, a manager, whatever, somebody talking to you is being authentic? Versus, what do you look for? So let, let, let's hear from the audience if anybody's- I, just, I didn't understand versus being what? Uh, being, being fake. Oh, fake. Okay. How do you know if you're fake or you're authentic? So what are the signs that you look for when you're talking to somebody? Anybody got some ideas out there? What is it that we'd look for? Because authentically inclusive leadership really struck me. And I found that to be fascinating. Anybody got some thoughts out there? Yeah, this is Vince. Um, believe yeah, Vince believability okay. is critical. Okay. in terms of authenticity. But I'd like to make another comment, Rosa, uh, which you said earlier, that the um, they, management doesn't listen to me. I'll tell you a brief story that happened to me many years ago. I was working in a manufacturing plant, chemical, and I was going to the top of a rack. <clears throat> a rack would be seven stories, no walls, just handrail. And I wanted to take a piece of equipment up that was going to pull a vacuum to do some air pollution studies. And I wasn't going to carry this thing up seven stories. So I asked a gentleman to wrap it and I would go up to the hoist, which was at the top. I'd pull it in and set it up and do the sampling. And he said to me, you, I don't work for you. Who are you? Why should I do this for you? Well, eventually I got his supervisor and the manager and he begrudgingly wrapped it up, took it up, I set the thing up. But when I walked back to the lab where I was working, it really rang a bell. He was absolutely right. What basis does he have to do what I asked? And as a result of that, we ended up creating a policy, an environmental health and safety policy signed by the president of the company and co-signed by the manager of the plant. That was top-down management. And next time I went down there, if he said, why am I here? I can point out that the president asked me to do this in that policy, okay? Top-down management is key, is key. And uh, boards of directors need to have a person as a member of their board who's dedicated to environmental health and safety that they can go to and make comments. I see a few things in the chat. Um, it all sounds like you've got to have this kind of thing called trust to become authentic there. Any other thoughts on that? Uh, Tina, I think you've got a word on there. Can you, can you open up your mic and explain what you mean by that? I just think you need to be able to relate to what the workers are doing. Um, if you're sitting at a desk and you're not actually familiar with the actual work that is happening, for them to trust you, you need to be seen and they need to be heard. Um, it's not so much work as imagined as work being done. Because I can sit in my office and type up procedures and policies and SOPs for individuals, but um, I may have a different idea of what they're doing than what they are actually doing. So it's just really important that you're able to relate to what they are doing um, and listen. And don't listen to respond, but listen to understand what they're telling you um, is, is really important. Great. Thank you for that. So let me uh, switch. Oh. Gary, a few of us have our hands yeah. raised. Go ahead, Richard. This is really an important question. And to me, it's one where 
I have to be respectful to people. I have to listen to them for them to begin to sense that maybe I'm worth listening to or talking with. So I have to earn that. And when people are blowing smoke, most of us can tell that pretty quickly. Kids can do it really fast. They can see when their parents are blowing smoke or not. The kids have figured that out really very early. We have to pay attention to what is our stomach telling us about the conversation. But it's all about conversations and sitting with the people. So when I would go out in the plant, I'd sit with them, not come to my office. If they came to my office, everybody's puckered up. One of the plant managers' office was kind of scary for a lot of people. So I'd go out and sit with the people and talk. How, how are we doing things? And Rosa's point of teaching people how to talk together is important. When Claire and I work in organizations, the biggest task we have is to teach people how to talk with each other, not at each other. And so that's a very important piece of it. And the manager has to help set the conditions for the conversations where it's safe enough to talk and people are willing to listen. So there's a piece of this thing where the manager, where I was the plan manager, I had to help create the conditions where it was okay to talk. But everybody was involved in that whole process all the time, working together. So it was a matter of opening it up, encouraging people to ask questions, answering the questions, paying attention when they gave me the Dickens because I'd done something stupid. And all of us learning and growing together. But it, it's also how do we look at people? <clears throat> we can look at the people in the organizations as employees. Well, employee is a legal term that defines my relationship with the organization in terms of rates of pay and hours of work and benefits and stuff. <clears throat> I didn't look at them as employees. If they're employees, I'm entitled to tell them what to do and abuse them and do whatever I feel like doing. <clears throat> but I'm not, those are people. They're people just like me. So I talk about people. I don't talk about employees. I don't talk about workers because we're all in this thing together. We have different contributions. We know each other, that we have knowledge that's different and we can share that and learn from it together because you can learn a heck of a lot from almost anyone in the organization if they're willing to talk. Thank you, Richard. That's great. I'm just going to hop in here for 30 seconds, um, uh, Gary, and, and then hand the mic right back to you. Is you know, I think it actually actually even goes a step before listening um, to identify if somebody is their authentic self. It's observing from what the person says that they value and they they believe in is that transitioned into their actual actions when you're engaged when they're engaging with people and when they're engaging with you so rosa knows i've done a lot of work on this in the last year trying to identify authenticity and so that's one of the patterns that we we have noticed rosa and i have discussed that about that observation piece and looking for patterns of consistency or in contradiction to people's behavior Okay, thanks, Tamara. So let me get back to the book, Rosa, and maybe I can also take a piece off what, what Richard just shared about people. You introduce an acronym, D-E-I-B. What does it stand for and how would you define it? D is for diversity, E is for equity, I is for inclusion, <clears throat> and B is for belonging. Uh, it's Actually, it's an acronym that keeps getting longer and longer, the longer uh, the uh, movement for racial justice goes on, because recently I just met a group that added an A at the end of that, which stands for access, access to resources. So those are the elements uh, identified for people to feel like uh, that they are an integral part 
of the business or our society um, that we accept the fact that there is diversity, that everyone is different and we accept people the way they are and who for, for who they are. Uh, equity is a difficult one. Um, it's different than fair, uh, than, uh, it's about fairness, not equality. Uh, and then there's inclusion and belonging, which I thought was interesting because inclusion is the act of bringing people into the circle. But if you don't go to the belonging piece, which is once they're in the circle, uh, making them feel that they're heard uh, and uh, important, they don't feel like they belong there. And we see that many of our organizations are stuck there. Uh, they hired a lot of diversity, but they didn't uh, weren't able to take it to the next level where people feel that they are uh, comfortable there, that they can be themselves. And I think that comes back to authenticity as well, because it takes a lot of courage to be authentic and to be yourself. Brene Brown has really uh, made, I noticed her last video got like 50 million views. So people are really um, focused in on this topic of how, how can I be authentic? How can I be myself? And really to be around someone that allows you to be authentic is really following these four acronyms. Uh, you know, they accept the diversity the, and they are fair, they're inclusive and you belong. Right. And I have a lot of research in my book about that because uh, there, there's very little success in this area, uh, basically because we, again, it goes back to the authenticity part because we, we say uh, that we believe in diversity, D-E-I-B, but then uh, no, we don't behave in those ways. People don't feel like they belong. You know, and, and I think I've seen, as I was reading your book, a lot of connections with psychological safety. Uh, so maybe you can see, how, from your point of view, how does DEIB connect with psychological safety? Well, um, uh, in my opinion, uh, they're absolutely connected because what happens when people feel uh, included, they belong, they feel accepted, uh, those are the fundamental, some of the fundamental aspects of psychological safety. Uh, uh, so you can't have uh, people can't feel psychologically safe if, if they're not being included and they don't belong. And by the way, it's also very related to uh, safety performance, uh, which is another point in my book, because organizations, uh, these are qualitative studies by the Gallup organization that link this sense of belonging and inclusion to organizational performance but they also have a lot of specific statistics on safety as well. And I, I do like how you treat this term we call power as well, and how you see that you know much of the conversation about psychological safety is an attempt to mitigate the uneven balance of power. And of course that allows people to speak up with their concerns or disagreements. So, but can you tell me about more about how power and status connect with belonging and inclusion? Can you clarify that? Well, it's it's part of the culture. Power, mm -hmm. the hierarchy of power is an aspect of culture that really runs everything. Because you, in every human group, there's people with higher status, and then on on down the line. And there's a very good reason for that. Uh, it developed as a survival tactic uh, way back when, because there has to be a certain sense of order about things uh, to prevent people from getting killed in the hunt or to keep mm -hmm. your, your group together to control conflict, to, to resolve arguments. And so power is, is absolutely a part of culture. The, the thing that I went into in my book is that there's a lot of things organizations do that claim that where they claim to share power. For example, the word empowerment. Let's empower our employees. And then employees go out and they do things. And then before they know it, <clears throat> their recommendations are ignored or there's some kind of blowback because, well, 
I know uh, I asked you to go, I only thought you were gonna go this far, but you went that far and that wasn't sanctioned. Uh, so I'm sure, I mean, everybody here on this call has experienced that because everybody here would naturally take an idea to the next level of development. In an organization, uh, we talk a lot about empowerment, but doing, but we don't do it. Uh, because the primary um, mark of a so far of, of a good manager is keeping control of their organization. And that's another aspect of psychological safety uh, that I talk about in my book, because when you say you want to create psychological safety in your organization, are you aware that uh, people are going to start to go outside the box? because they feel psychologically safe. They're gonna to start to do unexpected things. Google is a great example. Their psychologically safe workforce was out um, protesting some of Google's clients <laughs> and management is going, wait a minute, we don't want you to feel that psychologically safe. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> so um, I'd love to hear people's opinions on, on that uh, aspect of psychologically, psychological safety because um, it, it is a, a paradox uh, because psychological safety means that you, are, you feel empowered, you feel safe to be yourself and to do what you feel needs to be done, to feel what you feel is right, but that isn't always going to match what the organization is expecting. Yeah. Anybody out there want to um, share in some of the insights you've got? Uh, just uh, oh, out there. I know you have these experiences with your super intelligent uh, workforce that you've worked with. Well, Richard's got his that hand really up. Well. Isn't here. Maybe that's just a still photo of him. Yeah, if you got if you put your hand up there, then we can see if you want to share. And Richard, you've got your hand up, so why don't you open up your mic? Open up your mic, Rich. Hmm. These points Rose is making are extraordinarily important. And what at a deeper level is happening is that we're building the capacity of the people in the organization to be able to learn and grow and make decisions. When they're self-organizing like that, however, this organization needs to have a container that everybody understands. Where's the edge? And as long as you play inside the edge, you can do all kinds of things. If you want to go outside, let's talk about it and see what's going on and not just have this thing where the edge is vague because people, as Rosa said, will go and do things and they may not realize, you know, what, where's the edge? What's the boundary? So part of the conversations we have as leaders with the people in the organization is about the edge and what's going on. And I found that when people understood that, they didn't go outside at all. They did, they did great stuff. And it relates to safety. This is the key that's missing in getting our death rates down from 5,200 people a year down to less than 1,000. And we can do that quickly if we do the kind of things Rose is talking about. I know it. I've done that kind of stuff, and it works. And there are too many people in safety who are ignoring this. They think it's just touchy-feely. Here's a nice lady, and she's very kind and gentle. And, you know, I'm a big, tough man. I can go out and do whatever the heck I feel like. You know, that's wrong. We've got to listen to Rosa and others who are talking about this because this is the route to stop killing people at work and to build the capacity for the whole organization to excel. Well, in your introduction, you did talk to it about response strategies that address social human systems here. And we've talked about them both. You know, why is authentically inclusive leadership necessary? And now you're you suggest that we need to embed DEIB into everyday work in the organization. So this isn't an add-on, but it's got to be deeply embedded in that. So on that theme, how do, how do you embed things? Are there methods and tools you can do that to embed DEIB? And then if you do that, you probably embed psychological safety as well, from my understanding. Certainly, these are all 
tied together. They're, they're not exclusive and one cannot exist without the other. Well, in my book where uh, there, there's the, the chapter on how to build relationships, I spend a lot of time talking uh, about why uh, people have to be in relationship in order to listen to each other uh, and to collaborate and do all of the wonderful things that we would like to see people doing in the organization. Um, I want to backtrack one moment because my mind is there and then I can't think forward to answer your question fully, <laughs> Gary. Um, and that goes back to the authenticity uh, that we, we can be different in different situations, right? So when you go home, you're, you're authentically a father or a mother uh, and you're not gonna bring that authenticity to the workplace because it doesn't fit. But um, you're, um, it, you are unable to, the way the training is, is run these days is uh, in terms of emotional intelligence and how to create DEIB uh, is that we're, we're asking people to almost to change their personality. Right. So what I want you to do is I want you to go out into the workforce and I want you to start walking around and having conversations. And uh, I want you to uh, ask people, how are you today? Um, how are you doing? But if the person, if the manager doesn't feel authentic doing those things, it's not going to come it's not going to connect. And I think that's why a lot of those programs end rather quickly. You know, the, you must go out and have these walk-arounds, these walk-throughs. We have to find a way to let people explore uh, who they are, uh, uh, who they are inside, who they feel, how they feel authentic and relating to other people and accept that there are many ways to do that. Is that resonating? Yeah. Jim, Jim, you got a thumbs up there? You agree with that? Certainly do. And I think Rosa does a, a very good job in, in this book. I've, I've had the, the privilege of getting uh, some insight into what she's written uh, in describing that the way you go about DEIB can't just be a hang on. It, it has to be something that's integrated and it has to take into account the, the huge diversity within any organization. And it needs to be guided a little bit more by the people rather than those designated to be the leaders. Because those leaders, when you get right down to it, best executed are in positions that are below the workforce. They're creating the safety net for the workforce and to help them to accept that as leaders and to help the, the workforce actually believe that the structure is being created to enable that is a tall task. Yeah, well, that's a novel thought, asking people what they want, as opposed to like, I know what you want, so you're gonna get it. So. <laughs> But how often do we do that, right? So um, I guess that's, and I just sometimes wonder as a leader and a manager, you know, my experience where I've given a program, safety program to deliver. And I quickly find out that that's not really what my people want. Then uh, quickly you can get over that and start delivering what they really want. And you do that huh? by, by simply asking and listening and then responding to what they want there. Well, I noticed that in, in the examples and the tools that you give in your book, these aren't new things, Rosa. These have been around for a long, long time. So this isn't something that's new, you know, and, and brand new and whatever. No, this is something that you've got that has worked in the past year. Can you share some of those tools that you, you've got in the book? Well, shockingly enough, the most common thing uh, middle managers 
say is lacking in their relationship with their boss is the word thank you. Thank you. Uh, and this is so basic and so simple that people don't realize the power of, of recognition and connection that that creates with, with another human being to be seen as a contributor and to be thanked. And I think that's where um, it's a huge disconnect in our education system that we do not make people who are going to go into these fields uh, of working with people aware that these very simple civilities are fundamental to their success. Uh, and sitting down, I'm uh, working, I've worked with many organizations where they have this um, policy that you're supposed to sit down once a year with your employee and do a performance appraisal. And everybody hates that. And then most managers just don't do it. That's a good example of a, of a failed policy because people don't have the skills. They don't know, they, they don't, they can't even imagine themselves doing it. And instead of backtracking and saying, okay, what, what do we need to have in place? What are the skills? What, uh, what is it that is struggling with me, within me as an individual that makes me shudder when I think of having these performance appraisals? And other organizations have the, they're supposed to have one-on-one -on -one conversations, maybe once a quarter, or maybe even every couple of months or monthly. Uh, and these don't happen either. Um, well, consistently uh, what the research shows is that these one-on-one -on -one conversations is the place where the relationship takes form and where the conversation where people really understand each other. And I keep repeating myself that communication is conversation understood. It is not giving somebody information, which we do tons of written materials on this and that, but we are not communicating and we think we are because that's the way we were taught to do it. Uh, so it takes, it takes an unusual leader to step that back and say, uh, okay, um, admit, <laughs> it's kind of like the 12 step program, right? I admit that I have not been communicating <laughs> And I took an inventory and I uh, decided to go back and talk to each and every one of my direct reports and find out who they are, what they need, and how I can support them in being successful. Yeah, right. I see some hands up in yeah. person. Yeah. Vince, you got your hand up? Yeah, thank you. Um, you're causing all kind of bells to go off in my head. And I'll just hit a couple of them that I think may be of some interest. Uh, number one, when you have committees or groups that all of a sudden start stepping outside the bounds, you do have a control, and that's a mission statement or even a vision statement, where you outline what their area should be or is. The other thing that I wanted to mention is the annual review. Um, I had uh, people, and invariably, they would say to me, oh, I hate this annual review. Why do you hate an annual review? It's never good. And I said, wait, wait, time out. I said, we set up things for you to accomplish at the end of the year, but let's be fair to everybody. Things change. Things change during the year. So maybe you had X, Y, Z to do, but you did ABC. I said, yeah, we're going to review what you were asked to do. But at the same time, please write me what you, how you added value to this company in the last 12 months that's not part of what we agreed to. Mm -hmm. And the guy said, really? I said, really? I said, for the simple, simple reason, I said, you saved the company $20 million, but was not part of your review. So we don't talk about it. I mean, that's crazy. So get credit for what you did. And the third thing, and many people don't do this. There's a vast difference between what you are and who you are. When the plant manager goes out into the plant, he strikes fear, his presence or her presence strikes fear in the fact that 
He's going to come my direction. He's going to ask me a question about what I'm doing and I'm going to look like a fool, et cetera. That's what he or she is. Who they are is Fred, Mike, Bill, Mary. That's the relationship. The relationship being, should not be based on what they are, should be based on who they are. Yeah, really good point, Vince. Okay. That goes back to authenticity. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, right. In your book, you do talk a bit about the differences between conversations and communication. And I'm one of those people that, based on your research, we always kind of like saying, Zex, you got to get out there and spend time talking, listening to employees. The challenge that these people have is if I do that, then who's going to look externally at all the weak signals and all the changing environment if nobody does that job, if we're all kind of like circle wagons look in? So I, I, I reflected on that, figured, okay, if you, therefore executive or whatever, are looking out, how do you find out what's going on inside the firm very quickly? And this goes back to a conversation um, some time ago we had with Michael Sheveldave about looking at a complex adaptive system and collecting stories. And we've heard about collecting stories, how useful they are. And so the thought that, um, and this isn't in Rose's book, by the way, this is Gary talking, but the whole idea is that, you know, to help these executives, what we need to look at are the patterns that these stories are forming. Then you can go have curious conversations about these patterns. We see this happening. Can you share that with us or so? So again, hopefully, Vince, that goes into more about a bit of the what, but a lot about the who. How do you see what's happening in an organization? And can you share those insights for us? Because I think that's where a lot of the knowledge is, is inside the company. We just have to find a, a good way of, of getting it out. Okay. Anybody else got hands up at all? Um, somebody else want to open their mic up? Okay. Okay, well, if not, I'm going to move on to chapter nine, because chapter nine, the heading of the book is health and safety and emergent leadership strategy. So now we're going to put attention on the H&S advisor's role in future work. So Rosa, can you share your thoughts when you wrote this chapter? Yes, <clears throat> there are many um, safety and health advisors who see themselves as leaders. I, I've done several small um, surveys uh, asking people how they identify and the uh, vast majority ticked off the leader. They see themselves as leaders. Now, that, what that means to me is that they're poised to take that position on because leadership isn't an assignment, it's a choice in my book because you have the title of VP, that does not make you a leader. You have to have a following to be a leader, right? Mm -hmm. So these, uh, this workforce of safe, that works in safety and health is wanting to take a leadership position. Uh, they are seen as caring individuals within the organization. They're symbols of the fact that the organization cares. They are out there, they have a lot of contact with people. They talk to a lot of people. Many of them have relationships. They need a lot more development in, in that area because not all, they don't really know how to do that. But some of them, just because of who they are, their natural leanings, uh, which is to be a helpful individual, has brought them out to have these conversations and find out what's going on with people and to be of support. That's not enough. They also, they have to learn how to uh, combine that helping instinct with some strategy and some knowledge of the systems and how to create systems that will support that uh, in the total whole. But they do have that natural inclination that is a foundation for doing some of the things that we would like to see our leaders doing out in the organization. And uh, in the book, I say we should recognize this. And by the way, there is a tremendous amount of unused human potential in general in organizations. Um, I loved uh, all the research on how the teachers' expectations, the, um, 
the person in power's expectation actually change the level of performance in their group. Um, there's actual research that shows that if you believe, and there's a story in there which I love, which the um, these high school students who had been doing very poorly in, in school uh, joined a chess club with a teacher named Mr. Hall. And suddenly they started excelling in their schoolwork. When they were interviewed, they were asked, uh, well, what happened? How is it um, that you suddenly started uh, doing so much better in your schoolwork? And they said, well, it was Mr. Hall. Mr. Hall said we were smart and then we were. Somebody wrote in the things that it's not rocket science. <laughs> it's not. We are creatures built to respond to relationship, to respond to the expectations of others, to respond to the emotions of others, and to the extent that we become more self-aware. What what are emotion, our emotions? What are our expectations producing in the people around us? We're too quick to point the finger and blame it on that person's personality or that person's attitude when it has a lot to do with what we bring into the room, what we're bringing into the relationship. So I see this potential in, in the safety and health people that are attracted into the safety and health professional. And so I propose some structures that would need to change in order uh, for them to become part of the way the organization thinks. I call it the core business process that uh, it, safety and health cannot be part of the business process when we view the people who are working in it or leading it as extra add-ons. Nice resources, nice to have, but not really fundamental to what we're trying to accomplish in the organization. Yeah, yeah. I think something that's really resonated with me, which you said in the book, is the growth, the growth economy as we know it, it's dying. <clears throat> and the sustainable quality of working life based on an emergent economy is beginning. And I think that goes back to what you said, Vince, about you start off on day one with this plan in place, but 12 months later, things have changed. They have emerged. So it would be crazy not to talk about what has emerged and what did you do about it? So instead of having to wait a full year, maybe we need to have these conversations every week or so because it changes so darn quickly. Right? So again, it's all about the cadence that you want in your organization and how quickly you have to adapt to all these outside forces that are taking place. Okay. Yeah, well, I'd love to uh, get, uh, I'm sorry, did you have a- No, no, go ahead. Do you know where we are on the timeline? How many minutes do we have left? Oh, we got 10 minutes left, so um, let I, me- I just would like ahead. some reaction to the thought yeah. of this human potential that's left on the table in organizations. Do you, what um, does that sound resonate with you or, or not? Is it possible to change our perception of the safety and health function and, and the people that work in there. A lot of you are safety professionals, so how difficult, what sort of stresses and pressures are you under trying to make this change? Uh, would you even be attracted to make it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, some of you are leaders, <laughs> so <laughs> it's not like you're not. It's, it's a question of having it recognized by the organization, okay? Yeah, yeah. go ahead, Vince. Yeah, I'm thinking back. Um, typically, for years, uh, safety, health, and environment were are used, and most of today as well, as add-on to the organization, a necessary evil that we have to pay. And that there are a couple of occasions that I very definitely remember that uh, a plant was being built, uh, steel was on the ground, 
and uh, a regulatory person showed up and said, what's all this? And they began to proudly say they were going to build a plant, they were getting permits, all this good stuff. And the guy said, uh, you do have a year's worth of data, don't you, about the air in the area because it's a non-compliant area. So you have to, you have that and you're ready to show it to us. And they said, what? They had no idea. After that, an HSE person was at every business meeting because all they wanted to do was say, we're going to do this. We're going to go to XYZ and build a plant in this state. And the, and the environmental health and safety person hand goes up and said, I wouldn't put it there because, and the regulation says on and on and on. It's this sort of input that has to be seen by management. And it can be seen that once that happens, like the president of the company once asked me, understand the recordable rate is really excellent. I said, it's unbelievably good. He said, great. Now tell me why two people died this year. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have legitimate questions where HSC folks can participate in the management of the company, but it has to be demonstrated. Yes. And, and the, uh, the, the thing I want to emphasize too is that the caring aspect of the, the, the safety and health profession of those who are fit into that is a very important point of connection with employees. Uh, I, I've had a couple of kind of shocking experiences in terms of what I think safety and health, uh, what organizations are interested in, in terms of safety and health, uh, focusing in on risk management, and then finding out that what they care about is, uh, how do we show that we care about our employees? How, how, do we get, how do we get supervisors and managers to show that they care about employees? This, that caring piece, pierces right through a lot of layers of defense that opens up the communication so that we can even have the conversations that Vince is talking about because a safety professional can raise their hand and give all kinds of valuable information all day long. But if they're not, if nobody cares about what they're talking about, it's not going to do any good. Yeah. Well, we, I'm, I'm really pleased that we've got some previous Meet the Authors on this in the audience today. We've heard from Richard and Jim and Vince, and the only one we haven't heard of, I'm going to put you on the spot, is Rob. So Rob, tell, can you maybe tell us how our conversation today kind of relates back to your book? Oh, can you, is your microphone working? Can hear you. Oh, oh. oh, maybe you have a problem with Rob. Um, you've got your speaker on, but I can't hear you. All right. Um, maybe you can, if I can't hear you, could you put something in the chat? Just a couple of comments on there. Sorry about that. Okay. Okay. Anybody else? Any other authors? Um, Jim, Vince, Richard, any other comments about how it relates to your books? Yes. The things that Rosa talks about are just so crucial and they're not hard. We don't need to treat this as if this is something difficult and train people because people already know how to talk with each other. When they go to the bar on Friday night after work, they are talking with each other. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. Go out and sit with the people. You don't need to be afraid if you don't have all the answers. Just say you don't know and come back with the answer. That builds credibility. Right. Good point. And the re I find it terribly frustrating that the things like Rosa is talking about are proven and they work to cut injury rates by a large amount yet is being ignored by most of the ASSP organization. And that's, that's a shame. We know how to have fewer people get hurt, yet the work that Rosa and I and others are doing seems to be ignored, and it's a shame. Yeah, yes. Jim, comment? 
You know, I want to push back just a little bit, Richard, and I know that your heart is in the right place. But to say this isn't rocket science, to me, says that it's easy. And in fact, it is not. Because you're dealing with personalities. And every day you go to work, those personalities are a little bit different. And so you have to be sensitive. And I know that you are. I'm not suggesting that you're off track. I think that you have a very good approach. But it is not easy. And we should not represent it that way. Well, thank you and, for saying that, Jim. <laughs> and I think it's also mindset. You know, in my experience, when we were talking, I remember back when we were talking about workplace bullying and when that came in and I was blown, blown away as a junior, how the senior health and safety management team turned around and said, well, that's the fluffy stuff. I don't do fluffy stuff. I don't care what people are feeling or thinking. And that to me, I was junior, remember, right? And this is leadership saying that. So kind of backing up and, and kind of checking your own biases too. Like, what are we teaching the next generation of leaders in the comments that we make? I, yeah. Um, you should speak up whenever your microphone is working, Rob. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah, hey. Welcome. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry about that. I'm trying to uh, be not so uh, loud here in the office. Um, no, it's what I already said. Is the uh, the message Rosa is bringing is uh, appeals to me a lot. Also, well, the first uh, the first couple of times I spoke to her. Um, what, what's obviously critical to know is that we recruit people because of their knowledge and because of their skills, and then. Um, leaders and health and safety advisors are going to tell them what to do which is not logic logic people bring knowledge they bring skill um, the, the 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 trick is and the uh the essence that that's up to us as leaders is to make sure that these people are free to talk and they can they can they can tell what's on their mind what they see because they have the skill they have the knowledge yeah uh, but at the end of the day, it's not. Uh, it, it also needs to align in the team uh, what the best approach is to 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 handle the risks, to handle danger, because that's what it's all about. And um, the the biggest trick, and, and also it's the same message that I'm trying to, to to spread over the last couple of years, is to make sure that these people are feel free to talk without any fear of. Uh, being being told off or getting blame or uh, any, anything in that direction and, and and that's the biggest challenge as management we have to make sure that people are free to speak and uh, that they are being heard that they are respected as as knowledgeable skillful people because that's why we recruited them mm -hmm. yeah okay we are at the top of the hour so, um, oh, oh darn! Okay, well, I'll tell you, we yeah, just, it goes fast. Sorry. <laughs> so, I always, as you know, folks, I always like to end with three takeaways that the author would like to leave with us. So, Rosa, what are your three? Oh boy, I can only have three. So <laughs> <laughs> we can remember. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think one uh, is that leadership is a choice not an assignment uh, that and we need to be on the lookout for people who are willing to take that on so that we can mentor them and help them in their development um, the other is that the there's a huge reservoir of untapped potential in HNS uh, and the people that work within within health and safety, and I would like to solicit your support for um, uh, you know changing the way that the the curriculum is structured, and then also the support that new HNS uh, folks get when they come into an organization. And the last one is that uh, to begin to talk about. Uh, 
health and safety as a strategy to develop our organizations to be more successful because it has uh, all of the elements in it. Uh, it has all of the organizational systems as part of it, and it has all the social systems that are part of it. So that's the message that I'm going to try and get out into the atmosphere, and I appreciate your support in this. Thank you so much. Good. Well, thanks very much, and Tamara, over to you. Well, thank you very much, um, everybody, for joining us today, and Rosa, for taking your time out of your busy day and sharing your knowledge and your expertise and the great information that you've shared in your book so that more people are aware about what the book is about. Thank you uh, to Gary for hosting another show and taking out your time to do this as well and meeting with the authors before the show. And thank you to our audience for coming and joining us because without you, there would be no show. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. Oh, next month. See you all next month. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Richard. Thank you.